lawyer talk off the record on the air. Steve Palmer here. The usual crew not here with me, but the show must go on. It's been tough gathering everybody with the uh, normal holiday schedule, plus the shutdowns, closures, lockdowns, whatever you want to call it. But uh, uh, it's time to get another show out. And uh, those who listen to the Blitz know that it's been tough getting in with them as well, answering the weekly uh, Wednesday phone-in legal advice that is free phone-in legal with the Blitz 997. Uh, and again, because of the holidays and uh, the radio schedule, it has been tough to interface there. So uh, that does not mean that we have not received our questions here at Lawyer Talk. And uh, now would be a good time to mention, I suppose, that you can check us out at LawyerTalkPodcast.com. And there is a form there you can submit questions and, you know, people have. So I'm going to uh, answer the questions now, get this out, and then we will resume with the full crew next time. So let's get right to it. Question number one for the day. Can I get my juvenile record expunged? This brings up a whole host of related questions. Ohio, uh, we don't, ordinarily, we don't talk about getting a record expunged. We usually talk in terms of having your record sealed. Now, what's the difference? Well, I guess the best way to put it is this way. If you're getting your record expunged, you sort of think about it being destroyed, shredded, burned, gone, never to be seen again. Now, when you think of having your record sealed in Ohio, which is generally what most uh, crimes result in, sealed, think of it like, all right, I'm going to stick these records in an envelope, put them in a safe, lock the door, but some people will always have the key or the combination to get into the safe door when they need to. That begs the next question. When can they get in the door? When can they get to the records? Well, for instance, in law school, or say if after law school, when I applied for the bar exam to sit for the bar exam, believe it or not, you don't just get to uh, say, I'm going to be a lawyer and sit for the bar exam and, and pass, and, and that's good enough. You have to actually ask permission. They do a character and fitness interview. They look at your background. They interview you. They talk to you about all the dumb stuff you did when you were in college or high school. Uh, they talk to you about uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and they want to make sure that you have the appropriate character and fitness to become a lawyer. Now, you might laugh at that and think, well, uh, what kind of character are they do? That? What kind of standard is that? Because I know a bunch of lawyers and their character is questionable. Well, you know, we try to police our own field uh, and make sure that uh, we only admit good people. Uh, I'm not laughing, sort of. Anyway, uh, in the character and fitness interview, you were asked to disclose, or prior to that, in writing, you were asked to disclose anything, everything, all things that you've done, even if they have been sealed, even if they have been expunged. So even if you did have them shredded, burned, or whatever it is, then uh, you have to tell them about it and explain it. Now, if you had records sealed, you have to give them permission in writing to access those records, and they will. So they get the key to the safe. They get the combination. They get to look at them. Other uh, licensing agencies for other professions have similar access if you want to be a police officer, if you want to get to the FBI, if you want to have secret clearance, if you want uh, uh, to work with kids in a school, if you want to be a teacher, they probably have access to all those records. It's so broad, in fact, that at one point I remember sort of uh, exclaiming to myself, it's almost like there are more exceptions than the rules. So uh, if you have your record sealed, it's good in that, uh, it, typically speaking, if, if Joe Blow out there wants to Google you and look you up, uh, in theory, they can't just go to court and pull your records because they're sealed. They don't get the combination. 
but uh, lots of employers do. Now, there's another warning I'm going to give you is that once your record is sealed, um, you have to take some extra steps because now in the day and age of Google, as we just discussed, people can just look you up. They, they, they put in your name and maybe even an address or date of birth. And we've all done this looking for people. You see these results in Google that uh, if you pay whatever, you get a membership and they can give you uh, – the info. Well, here's the reality. There's several big reporting agencies that employers and others subscribe to, and they have uh, access to records. It's not as broad as, say, law enforcement access, but uh, they do have access. So when we get somebody's record sealed, we always send off uh, the entry sealing the records to a couple of these bigger agencies and say, hey, look, you better take this down, by the way, because it's been sealed. Now, the good news is if somebody uses the sealed record, for a purpose they're not permitted. And in theory, it's actually a crime. It's a misdemeanor to use the sealed record once it's been sealed for an improper purpose. You, the, the individual gets to treat the record or treat the situation as if it never happened. Now, this begs yet another question, which is, what do I tell the college admittance folks or my employer when I've had something that has been sealed? Well, in theory, you get to treat it like it never happened. In practice, you have to be cautious because if they Google you and it has not been taken down everywhere, they're going to say, hey, look, you lied to us, Sonny. You got a record here and we found it. All we did was hit Google or all we did was talk to our normal uh, HR, human resources reporting folks, and they said, no, guess what? You got a record and you didn't tell us the truth. So it's always this balancing act. Do you just uh, do you rely on faith and say, no, I've never had anything? Or do you say, oh, guess what? I got caught with an open container in college while I was uh, at a party uh, one time, and uh, I had that record sealed, and it's as if it never happened. But I thought I'd disclose it to you uh, just to, to show you that I am a good person with good character, and I'd much rather be known as somebody who uh, had a stupid mistake as a kid and told you about it than somebody who had a stupid mistake as a kid and tried to lie about it. Um, now, are you really lying? Well, legally, no, I, I suppose not if you've had it sealed. But uh, in practice, it gets sort of tricky because, you know, they're going to find it and not everybody's going to look at it that way. What's the answer then on how do you answer those questions? Well, you know, maybe you could ask a lawyer. I know a few good ones here at Yavage and Palmer. We often uh, help our clients get their records sealed. And I always tell them, give us a shout if you're ever filling out an application and you're you're not sure how to answer it. Uh, we can help talk through it. Now, the problem is uh, there's not always a bright line answer. You know, it's it, it, a lot of times people use your own common sense, I suppose. If you say, if you look at this and you're like, well, look, uh, it's not obvious what I should do. I may not be able to give you the obvious definitive answer, but we can give you a sounding board. And if there is a a more legal, so to speak, way to answer it than, uh, than another, then we'll, we'll help you through it. So, I've gone a bit far afield from the question, which is uh, now juvenile records. Well, yeah, if somebody is in juvenile court, then they are not being accused of a crime. They are being accused of being a delinquent. Now, that what's the difference? Well, it matters. And here's why. Now, if you are accused of a delinquency offense or a delinquency violation in juvenile court, you are not being accused of a crime. Let me repeat that. You are being accused of being a delinquent, not a criminal. Now, you would say, why does that matter? Well, all right. Look at the last application for a job or school or anything you filled out, 
And often they will ask you if you have ever been convicted of a crime, a felony, or a theft offense. Notice the difference in language. It is not a crime to be a delinquent. You, in juvenile court, get adjudicated as a delinquent minor, not convicted of a crime. Often, however, you are asked whether uh, you have been convicted of a crime or ever adjudicated or found to be a delinquent in juvenile court. So some, some folks have caught wise to this. Some, some folks always knew it and just don't care about juvenile records, but there is a distinction back to it. Uh, getting your juvenile delinquency adjudication expunged or sealed. Well, you there is a process for both. Believe it or not, juvenile court is one of those places where you can have your record flat out 100% totally expunged. That is shredded, destroyed, like it never happened. You can also have it sealed. Here's how it works. Um, you can apply first in juvenile court to have your records sealed. And that works just the way it does with adult records. The court uh, determines that uh, your record should be sealed. It puts it in an envelope, locks the safe. Now, if you make a a a tandem request, so to speak, or a request right after it's been sealed to also have it expunged, the court can determine uh, whether it should be expunged. Now, there's standards for all this, and, and certainly we're happy to talk you through it, and it's probably more than we want to get into. Uh, but generally, uh, for adults, you just want to have a good reason that outweighs the government's reason to keep the record. In juvenile court, there's a few more criteria they look at, but uh, it's similar. And now, to get your record expunged in juvenile court, uh, you have to make a separate application, or you can wait a few years after uh, the case is over or you turn 21. I think it's uh, three years. I'd have to look it up. Uh, it automatically gets uh, expunged or shredded. So juveniles, yes, the answer is you can, there's probably a lot more than they wanted, but yes, you can get your juvenile record sealed. You can also get it expunged, and we are more than happy here at Yavich and Palmer or Lawyer Talk to help you with that process. Uh, now, as an adult, unfortunately, there are very few, if any, situations where you can have your record actually shredded. One has to do with some human trafficking changes that happened, uh, but I'm going to be honest, I have never seen or been involved in a situation where I was actually able to accomplish a flat-out shredding of records. Uh, and I, I suppose one more comment. Not everybody is eligible to have their record sealed. Certain offenses don't qualify, offenses of violence felony ones and twos and even threes under the old law. Uh, if It used to be that if you had any DUI on your record, you couldn't get anything sealed. Uh, now it's a little bit different. Uh, you can get things sealed even with a DUI. Uh, it used to be that if you had more than one or two, you couldn't get your record sealed. Now you can, uh, but there's a lot of complexities. And usually when I get calls on these things, I say, all right, let's do this in a two-step process if it's not so clear that they're eligible. First, we're going to figure out what's on your record and whether you are eligible, then we can talk about having it sealed and whether we can accomplish that. So anyway, that's, uh, uh, that's about all I got to say about that. Question number two, and I suppose question number one had a lot of subparts. This one, maybe so too. I don't know. Uh, I got charged with DUI in Ohio. We call that OVI. And it, there are two different charges on the ticket. What gives? Um, I don't know if I've answered this question before, but uh, I will answer it again because it does get confusing. And there's some generalities I'll discuss here. In Ohio, there are two ways you can be charged with drinking and driving against the law. Two ways you can be charged with OVI. 
and there are more, but I'm going to give you two broad categories. Anybody listening to this and says, nah, there's more, it's more nuanced. Well, yeah, you're right. But generally speaking, let's look at it this way. If you are driving under the influence of alcohol, or they are accusing you of driving under the influence of alcohol, you're going to be charged with an impaired violation. Now, these are somewhat terms of art, but not necessarily in the law. So you are charged with being too impaired to drive. Uh, what does that mean? Well, that's like maybe your old granddad would have known a DUI to be. Uh, he driving down the road. He's had a couple pops at the local tavern after work. Uh, or maybe it's Saturday afternoon. He's been working on his car and uh, had a few too many beers and went out to the parts store and got pulled over. He's got an odor of alcohol. He's got bloodshot eyes. He's got slurred speech. He's unsteady on his feet. When he gets out of the car, he sort of stumbled back in and had to use the car for balance. Uh, they walked him around to the back of the car, in front, uh, his car, but in front of the cruiser, and had him do field sobriety tests where he was unable to touch his nose with his finger. He was unable to walk a straight line effectively, couldn't hold his foot in the air. Back in those days, they did some weird tests. They had him touch his fingers to his thumb. They did a thing called a coins test. They used to do some uh, some interesting things, interesting uh, field sobriety tests. And they concluded from that that, guess what? Grandpa is just too impaired to drive, and they put him in cuffs and take him to the station house. That is way number one. That's how the first way you get charged, an impaired charge. Now, the other charge on this person's ticket is likely to be what we call a per se violation. Now, what the hell does that mean? The best way to say it or the best way to define it is this. If somebody is operating a motor vehicle, now that could be a car, a bus, a tractor, a lawnmower here in Ohio, I think at one point, a motor scooter, a bicycle, uh, anything uh, that basically that rolls down the road. If you're operating a motor vehicle, even in the case of a bicycle when it doesn't have a motor, uh, while you have a prohibited concentration of alcohol in either, in any of your blood, breath, or urine, or all at the same time. What the hell does all that mean? Here's what it means. Um, it's a crime to drive with too much alcohol in your system, and it doesn't matter if you're under the influence or not. It doesn't matter. Why? Well, I mean, let's go back to granddad or anybody else you know. Maybe you know somebody, maybe you are someone who can drink 20 beers or uh, half a bottle of vodka and compose yourself uh, in a way that people don't necessarily know. In other words, you can hold your liquor. We all know that guy who's had 10 beers already or has six before you even pick him up to go out and he's just getting started and by the end of the night he's had 10 more and you don't even know he seems to be perfectly fine. Well, it doesn't mean that that guy gets a pass to drive a car. It doesn't mean that he's not committing a crime when he's driving. It just means that he may not display the same signs of impairment as an amateur because he's a pro. He's been drinking his whole life. He's got a tolerance, knows how to handle it. He got good at it. I used to know an alcoholic. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to do it. I shouldn't even use that word, but I used to know somebody who did not drink anymore. And I asked him one time, it's like, you know, you drove home every day after drinking alcohol how did you manage to do that? It's like, what, what's the deal? And, and he had an interesting response. He goes, you know what? I just got good at it. I, I, I practiced it a lot. And I sort of laughed. He goes, no, I'm serious. You know, the, if you operate 
under the influence of alcohol all the time, you get better at operating under the influence of alcohol all the time. You, you, you sort of, it becomes your normal and you, you not only chemically get a tolerance, but uh, psychologically you just, you can compose yourself better and you know how to handle it. And even if you're pulled over and this gentleman was a few times and he told me about it, he was able to, uh, to talk his way out of it because he was just used to being drunk all the time. And, you know, that's not an invitation to go get used to being drunk all the time because it wasn't good. But, uh, you know, he was one of those guys that had a huge tolerance and knew how to hold his liquor, so to speak. Now, that doesn't mean that if the police decided to test him, take a urine sample, take a blood sample or take a breath test, that he wouldn't be committing a crime just because he didn't seem or appear to be under the influence of alcohol. It's a crime in Ohio. The standard for most is 0.08. So 0.08. It's a crime to drive. Now, if you are a juvenile, it's 02. If you have a CDL, uh, it's uh, it's low. I think it's an 04. In other words, you can't you can't get out of it just because you look sober. So you have two charges on your ticket. One is for being impaired. The second is the one that uh, that resulted when you decided to go down to the station with the police officer, whether you did that voluntarily or in cuffs. And you gave him a breast sample. You blew into the machine, and it spat out a result. And these days, with the new machines, they're actually spitting out two results. You're taking two tests. Um, but uh, it spat out a result that was above the legal limit, uh, 0.8 or above, and uh, they charged you with both offenses. So on your ticket, there are two checks, one for being under the influence, another for being or operating a car with a prohibited concentration of alcohol. We call that per se. Why? Because it is per se OVI, if you've got a prohibited concentration of alcohol in your blood, breath, or urine. Now, in Ohio, you get charged individually with each. So if you took a blood test, it's a separate charge. If you took a breath test, it's a separate charge. If you took a urine test, it's a separate charge. Here's the thing. You can be charged with both. You can even be convicted of both. Now, what sense does that make? Well, I, you know, Maybe there's some nuance to it that we don't need to get into on the administrative side, but uh, you can be convicted of both. But you can't be sentenced on both. They can't just double it up because you got both charges. Here's what that means. If you just go plead guilty to both, say, you know what, screw this. I was drunk. I'm not going to fight it. Not only was I impaired, I was sh- I'm was. i sure I was above the legal limit because that machine said I was really high. All right. And you just go plead guilty and the judge says Guilty. The judge is not going to impose penalties on both of those charges. They will elect to impose penalties on only one. And in the case of a first offense, uh, here's how it shakes out. You plead guilty, you're going to get at least three days in jail or three days in a weekend driver's intervention program, the drunk school. You're going to get a license suspension in Ohio almost always one year at a minimum. Uh, there is a situation or, or a, um, a provision that lets them give you six months if you have uh, uh, if you do an interlock or other things, but most people aren't doing that. Um, you're getting a license suspension of one year with privileges to drive to and from during work, to and from medical appointments, mostly uh, all the necessities. And you're going to get a fine. Usually after court costs, I tell people plan on 500. So you're, they're not going to double that up. In other words, it's not going to be six days, $1,000 in two years. It's just going to be those same mandatory first offense penalties. And I should also note, doesn't mean you're only getting first offense penalties. I mean, if this is a second, you might get more or you will get more. Um, or if you have a hanging judge, so to speak, you're going to get uh, maybe even more than just those minimums. Please don't take this as gospel that if you plead guilty, that's what you're going to get because you just never know. 
Um, the point of it all is, yes, there are two charges on your ticket for drunk driving. They are different. They are related. You can be convicted of both, uh, but you can't be sentenced on both. Most of the time, I should add, they typically, they being the court system, prosecutor, whoever you're dealing with, will get one, will dismiss one in exchange for a plea to the other. Some jurisdictions require pleas to everything. So, uh, you know, what's my ultimate advice on DUIs? And, and maybe this is the best advice. Call a lawyer. Call us. You know, it just so happens that we're available 24-7. You'll get a live person answering the call. 614-224-6142. Give us a shout. Even if it's 2 in the morning, wake me up. I will give you some advice on how to handle it. Um, and there is a better way than others. There are there are better ways, I should say, than others to handle these things. Um and, and, you know, anybody who's listened to our old podcast, we did a DUI 360 series. And uh, the first lesson is uh, sort of like the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. I don't want to sound like a hypocrite. Uh, first, do no harm. What does that mean? Don't drink and drive. Get Uber. It's so easy these days to avoid it. Um, you know, first, do no harm. But if you have done harm or you have made a mistake, it doesn't mean that you're uh, on the fast train to uh, to the dark side, to Hades. Uh, it just means you made a mistake. We can help. Uh, and I should, the only other thing I'll add here is even lawyers I talk to all the time who don't practice in this area, they will often uh, call me up and say, hey, Steve, I got a client. He's a longtime client. He's a president. He's this. He's that. He's whatever. Uh, he's never been in trouble, but he's got a DUI, took the test. I was just going to go plead him guilty because there's, you know, I understand there's nothing you can do. And I always say that's a mistake. That's a mistake. It may be true that there is nothing you can do. It may be true that the only move is to hope and pray for first offense penalties on a conviction, but it is not always the case, and often it is not the case that there is nothing we can do. There's nuance to these things that just don't always show up on the face of it when you're looking at the ticket, when you're looking at the charges, when you're looking at the paperwork they gave you. And unless you do this regularly, unless you're one of us who, who has been doing this for years and years and years, uh, it's easy to miss issues. And uh, it's always better to have help. And, and the other thing I'll say is this. Even if you're going to plead guilty, imagine a scenario where you're standing in court all alone, out of your element, nervous, everybody watching you, judge on the bench, wearing a black robe maybe even using a microphone, and you're standing there. And they say, all right, Mr. Smith, how would you like to proceed on this? And they don't really walk you through it. Now, most courts will help you through the process, but if you just think you're going to go plead guilty, it's not easy to do. Uh, it's nerve-wracking. You're going to be asked questions, and you're not going to be sure of the answers. You're going to have to decide things, and you're not going to have all the information that you think you need to make decisions, and you're going to just be guessing. Will you guess correctly? Maybe, maybe even probably, but you're not going to be sure. And then after the conviction, you're going to have to deal with stuff that you don't understand. I have said this before, and I will say it right here on Lawyer Talk. Drunk driving cases, OVI cases, are about as complex as any case I have handled. Now, let me put that in perspective. I have handled multi-state, international drug conspiracy cases. I have handled uh, federal white-collar cases where I have box after box after box after box of documents and discovery and, and complicated RICO law. I have had murder cases, rape cases, arson cases, uh, 
DUIs, even though they are misdemeanor traffic violations here in Ohio, are about as complicated as it gets. Here's why. The law is confusing. I've already told you. We just talked about how you can be charged twice, convicted only once, and there's all these things that that, that you have to know. Uh, there's an administrative component to it. So just that once you get done with the criminal side or the criminal traffic side, rather, um, you have to deal with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and now you get into the deep state, the murky swamp of of administrative law, where you've got to reinstate your driver's license, understand what the insurance requirements are, try to get driving privileges, deal with um, uh, going to figure out where to take your program or your your uh, three day intervention program, reinstating your license, having getting changes to your driving, it, it's a mess. It's complicated. Now, if we're going to litigate the case, think about it this way, or just to evaluate whether you're going to plead guilty, we have to look at the Fourth Amendment ramifications. So now we have Fourth Amendment law. There's a stop of your car, Fourth Amendment. Order you out and have you do field sobriety test. Believe it or not, another Fourth Amendment consideration. Your performance on field sobriety test. Well, not really Fourth Amendment, but again, uh, a whole body of law on its own and science, pseudoscience, I should call it, on its own. An arrest, whether they had enough probable cause to arrest you, Fourth Amendment. These are all things that have, you could write volumes on the law created every single year on DUI stops and arrests. And then you have the the pseudoscience of, of field sobriety tests. Believe it or not, NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Association, has, has promulgated a, a big, thick rule book that changes every few years on field sobriety tests. Now we have drug detection cops out there who think that they can look at you and detect what drug you're on. Uh, all these things are wrapped up into a very simple traffic violation for OVI. Then you have the science. Imagine even just breath testing. Uh, it, it's it's not so simple how it all works. Uh, think about urine testing and how they collect the urine sample, how they store the urine sample, how they run it through the gas chromatograph, uh, and whether it is an accurate result or not. It requires, a again, vast, vast volumes of science and, and uh, case law have been created on this. Blood testing, even more complex. Uh, it is it is all wrapped up into these simple cases. So to evaluate a case, um, it, it takes experience, it takes knowledge, it takes a lot of creativity. And uh, if you go plead guilty on your own just to get it over with, uh, you're never going to know for sure whether it was the right move. Um, you just you're never going to be able to evaluate the case. The other thing I would note is that if you think you're going to get a deal, if you think you're going to go talk to a prosecutor on your own and uh, get the case resolved. Uh, get a deal, get a reckless, get a reckless op or whatever it is. Uh, think again, most prosecutors, if not all, they're going to be very hesitant to deal with you alone without an attorney or proxy in between. And by proxy, I mean attorney. They won't, they won't deal with your dad, your mom, your cousin, your uncle, your aunt, uh, your brother, sister, or anybody else, or your best friend who's been through it himself. Uh, you need a lawyer if you're going to get a deal. Uh, so get a lawyer, uh, even if it's just to evaluate a case. I should tell one story, even though I'm far afield. Um, I, I once had a guy and he was in my office for maybe the fourth time, third or fourth time. I can't remember, but it was multiple OVIs drinking and driving. And, uh, he sat down and I, he, he was a good guy. And fortunately I've not had to talk to him for a long time. That means that he has stayed out of trouble and that's good. Uh, but he looked at me and he goes, Steve, uh, or I asked him what happened. He goes, Steve, I have no idea. I don't know. 
look at this. Look at this. this guy was on probation already, I think, for his second or third offense OVI. He was in trouble, and he's picked up a new one. And he's sitting in my conference room and says, I don't remember what happened. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I, I remember going out. I remember drinking a lot. And I remember being like on the side of the road. And that's about all I remember. I remember sort of waking up in jail or I got driven home. I can't remember how it ended. So I'm going to court for the guy and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is not going to be good. Uh, it certainly is not going to be a case that we're going to be able to fight. But, uh, you know, this is why I, I like to employ a, a scientific approach at this stuff. I always have a checklist in my brain that I go through, and it starts with going to court and reviewing the evidence. I never draw definitive conclusions that a case is hopeless. So I, I go to court and I read the reports, and lo and behold, I found a flaw in the case. Now, this guy was hammered, to be sure, but the police had jumped the gun. They had screwed up. They had placed him under arrest way too soon. There was nothing in the police reports that I saw that uh, justified the arrest that soon. And it ended up, uh, we, we pled not guilty. We had a full-blown Fourth Amendment suppression hearing. In other words, we fought the case and won. The guy walked out clean and free. So uh, you never know. And, and I guess the opposite's also true. Many cases I've looked at uh, just don't, uh, they look like they're going to be great, but when you get there, they're pretty solid. So either way, uh, need some help on your DUI? It's simple. Give us a shout uh, more than happy to help. 614-224-6142. All right, enough of that question. Final question. A couple of weeks ago, we had a Blitz listener. And, and again, to recap, often we, on Wednesdays, will appear on the Blitz and uh, I will do some free phone-in legal advice. I don't really call it legal advice. I like to just help point people in the right direction. Um, but we had a listener and we started, but uh, there were some technical difficulties due to the remote COVID uh, situ social radio distancing and uh, we got cut off but um, they started to ask a question and then later they sent me a, a, a an email and uh, they they finished she finished the question it says in 2017 I got legal aid uh, divorce in 2017 uh, when I got the divorce both of us I presume that is her ex were considered independent contractors for a taxi company Child support was figured at uh, at amount it looks like around eighteen twenty grand, uh, based on or was figured on at eighteen or to twenty thousand dollars salary. Uh, somebody had to pay one seventy seven per month. Uh, now they both make more money, and this individual is afraid if uh, if they ask for more support, then ultimately the support they are receiving will get will be lowered because now they make more than he does and always has. I'm not sure about uh, the other's income, but I know that he still drive or that he drives a, uh, he's a commercial driver of some sort. Um, should I petition for more support? Well, let me sort of summarize this. So here's a situation where, uh, and let me, uh, before I even get there, I don't do divorce work day in and day out, and I am happy to make referrals on this kind of stuff, but I will give you some sort of basics on this. Child support is premised upon a, I'll call it like an algorithm or a, a formula that is not chiseled in stone. It is not uh, always the same for everybody, but it factors in, among other things, uh, each individual's income, household expenses that, uh, you know, we're not talking like huge vacation budgets, but general uh, expenses, uh, health care, uh, and, and maybe even time 
uh, or parenting time now with the kids. And there's been some recent updates on this, but I'll leave that for the experts. Uh, it's it's premised upon all those things. I think it, it's probably fair to say that one of the primary considerations is how much money does each person make. So let's say spouse one makes a hundred thousand, spouse two makes fifty. Um, the the guidelines, the child support guidelines, are designed to help uh, not comp- not always equalize the incomes, but maybe minimize the discrepancies or at least reduce the discrepancies. In other words, get it closer. So it's not necessarily true that if, if one makes 100, the other makes 50, they're going to say you owe uh, 75 because then it makes it equal, uh, it, it, or you owe 25 because it makes it equal. Uh, it, it doesn't always work that way. It's a little more complicated. But I think uh, it, I, I will say this. If, if one side goes in to court and files a request to get more support, and the other side challenges this, then I think you should expect an analysis of the incomes. So if the person who once made 50 is now making 150, and the person who once made 100 is now making 50, well, guess what? The support's going to get flipped. It doesn't mean just because you're requesting more, it's either you don't get more or nothing. You are giving the court the opportunity to adjust the support either way. And I will also note that in domestic court, the judge, the court itself, always maintains jurisdiction over the children and child support issues. Unlike spousal support, necessarily, where if somebody owes spousal support, um, you know, say that's a one year, the judge orders one year of spousal support at 500 a month. Well, after that, you can't go back and say, I want more spousal support. It's over. But with kids, with child support, the judge can always go back and adjust. So if you think you're making more now than the other, or even then you were making more, but the other decided that they were okay with paying you support anyway, or maybe the equities like uh, time, parenting time and, and insurance and other things made sense for uh, the support to be the way it was, don't expect that it's either a zero-sum game or you get more. It might be a less than zero-sum game. It might be that you get no support or owe this person support instead. So be cautious. Uh, well, that will do it for today's phone in, or I, I guess I should write in or email in legal questions here at Lawyer Talk. A few things going on here in the uh, channel 511 Bunker Studio C. Uh, the comedians in South High with Jared, you know, Jared's usually here, but uh, uh, they're rocking and rolling. Uh, the show is gaining lots of steam. Uh, so check that out, comediansonsouthhigh.com. There's a reason why it sounds so good. That's because Freddie B is making it sound so good. He's our sound engineer. There's a reason it looks so good and the websites uh, operate so well. And that's because Photo Dan, he's, he's multi-talented. He makes it look good on, uh, on still pictures, on video, uh, and on the web pages. So a uh, lot's happening. If anybody has any legal questions or wants to be a guest here on the podcast on Lawyer Talk, that's simple. Go to lawyertalkpodcast.com. Uh, send us a question. Uh, shoot us, uh, shoot me a call if you have a le- real legal question upstairs at uh, Yavich and Palmer, 614-224-6142. And if you think that you got the chops for your own podcast, guess what? We can help. Um, it's not always easy to start a podcast. It seems like it's easy, but Uh, I'm here to tell you, based on my own experience, based on my own trial and error, it is not easy to create a studio, 
make it sound good, uh, and then get it into the podcast world. We have a turnkey operation ready for you. Give us a shout. Uh, shoot me an email. Do whatever at channel five one one, and uh, we can help set you up and talk about what that's going to take. So, uh, this has been another I know a solo but still riveting uh, episode of Lawyer Talk off the record, on the air, off the air, on the record, on the air, whatever. At least until now.